Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And a special welcome on our, four, our fifth anniversary of being here in the building. Um, just out of curiosity, how many of you started attending MVF in the last five years? A lot of hands. That's awesome. God has been so faithful and has blessed us tremendously. And so uh, just welcome. We're glad you guys are here. We are in a summer sermon series called Marked. It's all about the gospel of Mark. And I'm just curious, did anybody take the challenge I gave you a couple weeks ago? A couple weeks ago, I said, read all the way through the book of Mark in one sitting. It takes about 90 minutes. Anybody do that? A couple hands? All right. When we do that, we see some very different things than just reading little tiny sections at a time. So it's worth your time to give it a shot. 90 minutes is all it takes. Um, this morning, before I totally get started, I just uh, want to ask you a question. How are you doing? How are y'all? You good? Yeah? Summer's good so far? Kind of easing into it a little bit? Uh, is everybody recovered from the long weekend last week? I don't know about you guys, um, I took the opportunity to start doing a bunch of stuff outside, trying to get some things done. Um, and honestly, I think I'm aging. Yeah. You know, this, every day, thank you. Hopefully, right? Um, you know, uh, things that I would not have thought about doing, you know, I wouldn't have thought about twice doing. Um, I did them, and I've been thinking about them every day since, you know, particularly in the morning when I get up. I'm kind of hoping that this is just kind of the beginning of maybe just the, the summer training, just getting going, but it might be more. I don't know. Well, today is the eighth weekend of our series, so we are going to be in Mark chapter 8. There it is. And uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles and begin there. Um, you have heard us mention the Ask Anything. I'm just going to mention again. It's a number there at the bottom of the screen. For those on the podcast, it's 720-551-7080. And so at any time, whether um, this morning, during the sermon, or during the week, if you have spiritual questions, go ahead and text that number. And one of the pastors will get back in touch with you. And this morning, if you text some questions during the sermon, we'll, we'll kind of come back up at the end and, and try to answer a couple of the questions live. Okay, You have probably heard me say before that the Bible was not written with chapter and verse numbers. Okay, Those were added about 1,500 years later by a French uh, publisher with the printing press. And he kind of added those just to make his job easier to make sure he didn't miss anything. And so in my humble opinion, the, the chapter break for chapter 8 is in the wrong place. Okay, It really should be about verse 27. And we're going to start into this, and I think you'll see why. But before we go there, we always have to start on Mark 1.1 at the beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You've now heard it multiple times during this series. This verse is the thesis, it's the purpose, it's the focus of what the author, John Mark, was trying to say. 
And so everything is built on proving this. Everything is built around it. Um, and so we also have to make sure we're always reading the Gospel of Mark in light of this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the beginning or the start, not just because it's the beginning of the book. It's because this story that was started is continuing today. All of us are involved with it. All of us are interacting with this gospel thing and trying to figure out who Jesus is. And the gospel, well, it's the good news that everything comes from Christ. That through faith, we can have a relationship with him. And each chapter builds upon this this statement. Uh, And every chapter builds upon what's come before. So as we dive into chapter 8, it's just good to know, at the end of uh, chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples was in an area called the Ten Towns, or the Decapolis, okay? And chapter 8 starts this way. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days, and they have had nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they will faint along the way. For some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men and more women and children in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. If you'll recall back a couple weeks, Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And yes, there are two different stories here. Sometimes we think it's just one, but it's actually two different stories. And there's some important differences between them. Back in chapter 6, when he fed the 5,000, well, he was in a largely Jewish area. They had spent about a day with him or so teaching, and he fed them. And they collected 12 baskets of food at the end. Now, when you read the Bible, sometimes there are certain numbers that have meaning, and 12 is one of those. 12 means, more often than not, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so basically, Jesus fed Israel. That's what he did then. Here we are in chapter 8. He feeds 4,000. He's in an area that I mentioned is called the Decapolis. Now, we've already hit that once before in Mark. Mark chapter 5, Jesus shows up, and that time he's greeted by a man possessed by a legion of demons. And he cast the demons out, and how do the people react? They're afraid. They're terrified. They ask Jesus to leave. Jesus tells the man he just saved, he said, go ahead and tell everybody what I've done. He must have done an incredible job as a missionary, right? 4,000 people show up this time, and they spend three days just soaking in what Jesus is talking to them about. And this time, they collect seven baskets of food. In the Bible, seven often represents perfection, but it also represents completion. So here it is. Jesus has taken care of the tribes of Israel, and now he's taken care of the non-Jewish world too, and he's completed it, right? He's going back to God's original plan that God was not just for the Jews, he was for everybody 
gets completed. Right after that, John Mark launches into a couple small stories. Just in the interest of time today, I'm going to move through them. It's not that they don't have value. It's just I want to get to something else, okay? But let me paraphrase them real quickly because there are some things that we need to pull out. Right after this incredible miracle, some Pharisees show up and they ask Jesus, show us a sign that you really are who you say you are. And Jesus doesn't give them the sign and they don't believe him. Then Jesus and his disciples get in a boat again. It's a common theme through Mark. And this time, uh, the, the disciples did not remember to bring any food with them. So they're on the lake, and Jesus starts talking kind of figuratively, and he's saying, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. You see, which is basically just saying, uh, you know, the Pharisees, their false teaching can permeate your thinking. Beware of that. But the disciples take him literally. Because he mentioned yeast, they're thinking bread. They go, oh man, we forgot the bread, and he's honest about this. You see, the disciples were starting to believe who Jesus was, but they didn't have the full picture yet. They still didn't quite have the vision of who he really was. Which is interesting because the next story that's in Mark chapter 8 is this one. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and to heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. In other words, I'm starting to see, but I don't see clearly yet. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back to the village on your way home. Quick question for you. Did Jesus fail to heal him the first time? No. He did it for a purpose. And I think the purpose wasn't for the man, it was actually for the disciples. For them to kind of see that sight doesn't come instantly. It comes progressively over time. And it requires multiple touches from the master. And it's the same with us in faith. We don't instantly believe. We believe more and more over time. The focus of the book of Mark up to this point has all been about this question. Who is this man? This particular one, this quote, is straight out of Mark 4 where Jesus and the disciples were on a boat and Jesus calmed a storm in the waves his disciples were terrified and they said, who is this man? That's what the first part of Mark is all about, answering that question. Who is Jesus? And the two miracles at the beginning of chapter 8 are important. Feeding the 4,000 Gentiles and healing the blind man. They are necessary to complete the vision of who Jesus is that is found as the suffering servant in the prophet Isaiah. You see, he had to feed both the Jews and the Gentiles, and he had to heal the blind man because when you read Isaiah, that's what you find out. He took care of all the nations and the blind could see. What we're about to walk into, I call the hinge point of Mark because from here on out, everything changes. The focus of Mark, the question he's going to ask is different. So Mark 27 Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. 
And as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others says Elijah and others say you're one of the other prophets. In other words, well, you're a good teacher. You're a good rabbi. You, you might be a prophet. You certainly are a good man that is nice to listen to and you do some miracles along the way. Then Jesus asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Who is this man? He's the Messiah. Now, some translations in English will say the Christ. Um, The Christ means the same thing as Messiah. It's just the Greek word versus the Hebrew. I like Messiah here because I think that's what actually Peter said. He would have said the Hebrew word. You are the Messiah. Mark has been working on answering this a number of times, and sometimes he's been pretty direct about it so far. Verse 1-1, he says directly, Mark says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In verse 11 in chapter 1, Jesus gets baptized, and he comes out of the water, and God's voice says, you are my beloved Son. And then there are several times where the demons, the enemy, who actually know the truth, but they try to distort it, but they proclaim the truth, that he is the Son of God. And when we hit verse 29 in chapter 8, where Peter says, Peter says that you are the Messiah, um, this is the first time the disciples have actually proclaimed who he is. They're starting to get that vision of who he is. Now, the other answers they said, John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet, those are no more true than anything else that people say today about Jesus. That he's just a historical figure or mythology or he was a good guy, but not the Son of God. None of those are true. Peter's answer is the only true answer to the question, who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. And now that that's proclaimed, we shift our focus the rest of Mark to what did Jesus come to do? If you were to catalog the first half of the book of Mark, you will see that beginning part, uh, Jesus is mostly with crowds. But then if you look at the second half, he is mostly with his disciples. And at this point, what he is doing is he is telling them, this is why I came And this is what you are going to do to continue my message moving forward. And John Mark wastes no time diving into this. Then Jesus began to tell them, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. What did Jesus come to do? To die. For us to rise again from the dead for us (laughs) folks this is bedrock truth if we believe in Jesus this is it and I probably could end the sermon right here this is the important thing remember that it took Jesus a couple touches, he, or he gave a couple touches to the blind man so that he could progressively see. At this point, the disciples still don't have the, the full vision of who Jesus is and why he came, Peter in particular. 
As Jesus talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Then he reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view. You have the wrong vision of me, not God's. Ouch. That would have been pretty harsh. Peter could answer who Jesus was, but not what he came to do. Did Peter ever get it right? Well, remember, the book of Mark is written by, by John Mark over Peter's eyewitness testimony. So yes, he figured it out. And in particular, Peter wrote two other letters that we have in the New Testament. First Peter, in particular, begins with this beautiful, long, run-on sentence in the original Greek, it's one very long sentence. English translations, they can't handle that. They go ahead and break it up. Peter wrote this, um, and he had three different decades where he was reflecting and seeing what was going on after this event. And the people that he was writing this letter to had been persecuted for believing in Jesus. So I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, and then we'll kind of come back to it, okay? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with a great expectation. Many English translations say a living hope. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though for a while you must endure many trials. What are they enduring? Persecution. Being beaten in the streets because they believe in Jesus. Friends and family and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ disappearing because they're being thrown in jail. Being murdered for their faith in Christ. That's the trials. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Do you guys know the term Roman candle? It actually is from this period of time. You see, Caesar and the elites in Rome would light their dinner parties by burning Christians alive. Kind of puts the whole term being tested as fire in a whole different light, doesn't it? Did you catch what the secret of survival is that Peter is saying? Did you catch it? Suffering is not something we like to talk about. We probably are not going to experience the same sort of suffering that these believers had, the, the violence and the torture they went through. But what about loss? Loss of our roots. Loss of our sense of home. Loss of people that we love and friends. Loss of wealth and possessions. Loss of standing in our community. Maybe loss of strength and ability. 
loss of freedom of movement, and then we die. We will all experience this loss over time. It's part of just living. In my own life, I am acutely aware that I am aging. My body doesn't look like it now, but long ago, I used to be a good runner. And I'm dealing with the absolute reality that I will never again get close to my abilities, my speed, my strength that I used to have. I'm experiencing loss of strength and ability and flexibility. I feel what I did the day before a lot more than I used to. In my father's life, I am acutely aware of his loss. Um, you see, this last week, I, I moved my father and his wife to uh, assisted living because of Alzheimer's and dementia. I'm watching my father's loss live, the loss of his home, the loss of his ability to learn and problem solve and adapt, which has always been a huge part of who he is, loss of freedom, loss of memory and being able to sometimes form good sentences. He's starting to lose parts of his life. Some of that life is happening just because of the progression of the disease. Some of it is happening because of the decisions that I'm having to make for them, to move them someplace so they get the support they need now and they're ready for the support that they're going to need more in the near future. This progression of life is hard. It's not easy. And we're all going to experience part of it, aren't we? There's a gentleman. His name is Victor Frankel. Here's a picture of him when he was pretty young. Victor was a brilliant man, and um, he became a medical doctor at a very, very early age. By 1930, he was a doctor in Austria, and he was put inside in charge of a uh, treatment center for women who had been attempting suicide. He was highly successful in treating them. Eight years later, 1938, he was promoted to be the head of neurology at Rothschild Hospital in Vienna, a prominent hospital. He was successful, but there was one problem. He was a Jew in Austria, 1938. He got married, and nine months later, in 1942, his wife himself, his family, his colleagues, his friends were all sent to a local concentration camp. His father died of starvation there. Then in 1944, he was transferred to Auschwitz. His mother and his brother were gassed in the gas chambers, and Victor narrowly missed it himself. His wife died of typhus. Only Victor and one of his sisters survived. None of his friends, his family. They all died. In the consecration camps, uh, people had to work during the day. But Victor knew that maybe the only way he could survive was to start to analyze what was happening around him. So he actually started his practice again. At night, he was seeing patients. He became obsessed with trying to understand how people were processing the suffering and the loss that they were going through and how they survived. You see, the, the loss that I described, people normally, we go through that over decades of time. 
They were experiencing it in weeks and months. Victor started to see patterns in people, and he started to see some particular groups emerge. One group in particular was a group of people who basically they started acting out of instinct, almost like an animal. It was just about eating and surviving, right? And they died. Another group, because of the trauma, went so deep inside of themselves, they basically turned off everything, their emotions, their communication, everything. And they died. There were some people that would set almost like goals, if you will. There was one guy, he was completely convinced that three months later the war was going to be done and they'd be liberated, so he put it on a calendar. The calendar date came, war was still going on. Within a week, he got sick and died. There were others who just said, you know, if we can just get through it, if we can just get through this, on the other side, life will return to normal again and everything will be okay. But, of course, life would never be the same. And he followed up with them after they were liberated and found out that many of those people were crushed because life was different. And they didn't do well, and they died quickly. There was a small group of people, though. A small group that, as he said, had a simple hope. Something that could not be taken away by anybody else. An example was a man who was a baker who got joy from baking bread, and so he just looked forward to the day that he would be baking again. There were artists and musicians that um, just were thinking ahead of the simple thing of picking up a paintbrush or a guitar again. Frankel himself realized that he was surviving because he just wanted to help people. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a great book to read covers kind of what happened to him. But here's one of the key thoughts out of it. He, he came to the place he said, life is primarily not about pleasure, as Freud might say, or a quest for power, as Adler might teach. It's a quest for significance, for meaning. Now, he was a secular Jew, so he didn't use these terms in his book, but basically he was describing what I would say would be hope. Life is a search for hope, and man pursues that. So here's my question for you. What is your hope? What do you cling to that loss and suffering will not take away? What gives you purpose and meaning? Back to Peter and the early Christians again. Blessed be the God and our Father of Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, this is three decades after Jesus rose again, and Peter is seeing his friends and his family and his fellow believers rounded up and killed as part of the first century Holocaust. And what does he look at? When we encounter pain, loss, suffering, injustice in our world and life around us, what is the first place that Peter tells us to put our hope? What are we to look to? The empty tomb and Easter morning. A living hope. And where does this come from? 
Does it come from things that we do? No. Does it come from being just hopeful that we get to go to heaven? We just kind of survive today and get there. No. Peter is saying his hope is actually from the resurrection of Christ. Not even Peter's own resurrection or ours, but Christ himself. His resurrection is the source of our hope. I think sometimes we forget how radical this thought is, right? We get so used to the story of Jesus that he rose again that we kind of get numb to the fact that this is crazy and powerful and incredible. How many leaders in the world before Jesus based their entire movement upon the fact that they were going to die? Zero, right? And how many after Jesus? Zero. Jesus is unique. He's the one. On our own, we have no hope of surviving and getting past suffering and loss. It's going to happen. But when we place our hope, our confidence, our faith, our purpose in Jesus, who conquered death, living hope, a hope that doesn't just give us a future, but allows us to live and thrive now to be a different kind of human. After rebuking Peter, Jesus called the crowd to join his disciples and said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are we living this way? Are you living this way? Are you a fan of Jesus or are you a disciple of Jesus? Does your walk with Christ go beyond just an occasional Sunday morning and maybe giving thanks over food? Are you sold out for Christ? I think in these couple short verses, Jesus is giving us the essentials of what it means to be a disciple. And first, we have to deny ourselves. We have to take up our cross and die to our old self and our old ways. We don't live for our own selfish desires anymore. Instead, our priority is for loving God and loving others well more than we love ourselves. And second, we have to follow Jesus. We have to find out everything we can about who he is, what he taught, what he's like, and then try to imitate that in our lives so that we're changed. Change our attitudes, our behaviors, change our reactions when somebody cuts us off in traffic. It's about our heart posture. We have to change to become more and more like Jesus over time, progressively, to see his vision more. And last, we have to make Jesus famous. The opposite of being ashamed of someone is to be proud of them. So we need to be proud of Christ. We need to make him known to the people around us. 
And we do this by how we live, what we say, what we share about our living hope, about what the source of it is and how we live in it. We have to deny ourselves, follow Jesus, and make him famous. The fundamental question we all have to answer, who do you say I am? And what did I come to do? We have been praying during this this sermon series that you will be marked. That's the title. Marked for Christ. Marked differently than just going through the motions of faith, but to get to a new place. So that deep down, you absolutely know who Jesus is. And because of that, you know what he did. And you go and you tell everybody else that he did it for you and for everyone around you. Now this morning, I can't give you a silver bullet of exactly how to get there. I've told you what we're supposed to do, but getting there is progressive and it's a little different for each one of us. And so I'd encourage you, there are so many people here in our church not just the pastors and elders and staff, but many, many others who want to tell you their story and to help you take your steps. But if you don't know how to talk to one of them, use the Ask Anything number. Ask for help. Ask, hey, I want to go deeper, but I don't know how. And we'll figure out how to, how to get with you and talk you through some of it and just walk beside you. Who do you say I am? You got to work that out and answer it for yourself. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I am in awe of you. I am in awe of the way that you made everything and put it in motion in your incredible love for us. As a father, I don't know that I would give up my son to go to die for others. And that's exactly what you did. And Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are the Messiah, the Christ. That you followed your father's plan because there was no other answer for us. No other way that we could have living hope over the suffering and the loss and the things that we are going to face even if we don't want to think about it and want to avoid it. But you are the answer. And I thank you that you did not do any of this in secret. You made sure that you left us with your word so that we could find out who you are what we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to imitate and become more and more like every day. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you help guide us and help us. You convict us of the things in our lives that we need to confess and to work on change with your help. And Jesus, thank you for loving us first loving us while we were still broken. We are still broken even now, but you loved us because you wanted to redeem us and heal us, to forgive us of being boneheads and selfish. 
Jesus, thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.